Well, let's um, before we jump into the message, let's let's take a moment and and pray. And I was just generally looking over the the prayer list that's in the bulletin and just looking over the names and some of those I'm sure are um, members or uh, family members of members or friends of members. Um, some of those are health, particularly physical health related cancer um, and other physical ailments. And some of them are more mental health type ailments and and then there's a lot of other things, too, that are, are, are on that prayer list. But let's take a moment as we begin and let's just remember those among us who are hurting or struggling or even those that we're celebrating with um, in prayer. For when, when Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about the body, he says that when one part of the body suffers, we all suffer with it. And when one part of the body rejoices, we all rejoice with it. So let's pray. Um, pray for our body. So, Father in heaven, we come before you as just a good and powerful and true God. We come before you because we know that not only do you look and you see us and, and all the people who are on the prayer list and all the people who are in our families or our friends, or our other loved ones, Lord, we, we know that you see them, but Lord, we also know that you long to move to be with them. Lord, maybe that's just your presence needs to be with them because they're going through a difficult time. Maybe, Lord, they just need your healing touch. Uh, maybe it's cancer or um, some other ailment, or maybe end-of-life type issues. Lord, maybe it's, it's, a, it's a mental health type situation where they need your touch on their heart and their mind. But God, whatever it is, we pray for all the people on the list. We pray, and we want to just not only pray in this moment, but Lord, we want to be faithful to pray for them throughout the week. Because we know, Lord, that the prayer of a faithful man or a prayer of faithful people is powerful and effective, just like it says in the book of James. And so God, hear our prayers and we ask this all in the powerful and wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So I'm here on the day or the Sunday after Easter, Resurrection Sunday, and I believe last year I was as well. And I believe last year Pastor Dave gave me the road to Emmaus also. Um, so I don't know what that means, but here I am. And what I titled my my message this this time was how to experience heartburn. Okay, yeah. How many of you know what heartburn is? Yeah, okay. We a lot of us do. I don't think we're going to be talking about that type of heartburn though today, because um, I'm not a doctor. But uh, we will be we will be looking at um, some heartburning experiences that we see from our passage. So my first question for you all is: Have you all ever had an experience when something literally pulls on your heartstrings? Y'all ever had one of those moments? Maybe it's a moment of deep joy or contentment. 
Maybe it's a moment of deep loss or grief. Or maybe it's a moment of confusion mixed with excitement and anticipation. I myself had one of these experiences recently as I had some proud parent moments and my heart literally felt full of joy. Any of, any of you all had those? Yeah. Today we are going to look at a post-resurrection story of Jesus and see how his disciples had their own experience of the heart. And so the story I want us all to spend some time with today, as we mentioned, is the road to Emmaus story at the end of Luke's gospel. So if you'll go ahead and turn with me to Luke 24, and we're going to be looking at Luke 24 verses 13, 13 through 35. So Luke 24, 13 through 35. Okay, and before we before we read this, let me let me set the stage just a little bit. So as of now, in this part of the story, Jesus has been crucified and he's been placed in the tomb. And it is the third day, Sunday morning. And in the previous story, some of the ladies had been to the tomb to care for Jesus' body. And when they arrived, Jesus' body was not there. And some angels greeted them to tell them that Jesus was alive. They then went back and told the rest of the disciples what had happened. But the disciples didn't believe them. Yet, they were curious enough to go check it out on their own. And they soon saw the empty tomb. And they left perplexed as to what had happened. And this is where we pick up our story today. So let's walk through it together. So I'll be reading, I think it's on the screen, I'll be reading out of the NIV. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. 
So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while we, while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. The word of God. As we start and kind of work through this passage a little bit, I want to start in verse 13. Two of them were going. I think it is easy for us to assume that the two are part of Jesus's 12 disciples. But from the story, we know that it isn't. We know that it's not the 12 or two of the 12. We just like don't really think about it. We just assume, right? That's how the lullaby effect works. We assume that every time the New Testament mentions the disciples, it's referring to the 12. But that's not the case. Because Jesus had more than just 12 disciples. We know that the 12 served a very special purpose. But Jesus had special encounters with all his disciples. I mean, think about Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, um, verses 3 through 6. It says, For I delivered to you as if of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sin in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. So we know that there are others that Jesus appeared or that followed Jesus that were considered disciples to some degree. Now, like I said, they weren't the 12, but they were those who followed him and were loosely considered disciples. I mean, that it even mentions that he appeared to more than 500. That's a lot. That's a lot of brothers to be appearing to. That's a lot of a big pool of followers of Jesus. So in verse 13, we also read where they are going. They are going to Emmaus. Now, it is not an understatement to say scholars have different ideas and disagree where this village was located. There are three different credible options for where this Emmaus is, but not, I, I don't want to bog you down with those details for today. But either way, This city that they went to, this Emmaus that they went to, would have required a minimum of a seven-mile walk. How many of you walk seven miles each day? Not not many of you. So I guess if I if I do my like steps on my like phone or my watch, you know, count my steps, 
There might be a day or two where I hit seven miles, but it's very few and far between. So, you know, it's a, it's a pretty good, pretty good little walk um, from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And as they walked, they discussed everything that they had just bore witness to in Jerusalem. And as they are talking and probably feeling a little confused and dejected, Jesus comes up beside them. But if we notice in the text, it specifically says that they were kept from recognizing Jesus. And so there is some debate as to what that exactly means. So what it could mean is that Jesus prevented them from being able to see him. Like there was an active process that Jesus had to to veil them from recognizing him. So that's what some believe. Others believe that in their grief and in their like they had never seen a resurrected person potentially before. They they're just not even thinking of it. They're just not seeing it themselves. Right. So that's the uh, that's the other the other viewpoint um, is that maybe maybe Jesus is actively preventing them. Maybe it's just they're failing to see because they can't imagine Jesus being resurrected on the road with them. But whatever the case, it does lead to a legitimate question. Why doesn't Jesus address who he is from the very beginning when he comes up beside them? And I think the answer is that Jesus was in his life who he is in his resurrection, Jesus was in his life who he is in his resurrection. And Jesus is a teacher. And Jesus is a teacher who teaches experientially. And it is clear that he wanted these disciples to go through the discovery process. To go through that process. Because sometimes, um, for how many of you are teachers or have been teachers out there? Okay, a few of us. Some of us who are teachers, we know that sometimes the best way to teach students is not necessarily to just talk about it or write it up on the board, but to have them go through the experience of discovering it or learning it on their own. And so I would have to imagine just as Jesus did this with his parables and the other things during his life that Jesus is using this process for a bigger discovery for his disciples. So Jesus asked them what they are talking about. And we then hear that one of their names is Cleopas. Cleopas responds in disbelief that this person wouldn't have known all the happenings of the Passover festival, especially how it ended. And, you know, I don't really blame him, right? Like, I mean, this probably was the talk of the town, like, Everybody would have known what was going on during the Passover festival, and everyone probably would have known what was happening with Jesus. And the, a crucifixion of a Jewish leader or a figure, a prof, someone who people thought was a prophet, would have been a big deal. It would have been headline news. It would have been breaking news, like it says on your screen or your phone um, from your news apps, right? Breaking news. Like it would have been something that everyone would have known about. And so they then go on to tell him about 
that this Jesus that was killed, that they had this gospel hope in him, that he was going to be the redeemer of Israel, and that now everything seemed hopeless. But into that, they mention the fact that it is the third day since it happened. Keep in mind, a lot of important things happened on the third day. And if we think about the story of Jonah, we recognize that on the third day is when Jonah emerged out of the belly of the whale. So we know that and in the Jewish mind that the third day is a symbolic day of new things or something new could happen. And so Jesus is with them on this third day, and they don't even recognize this powerful thing, but they are completely confused and bewildered because they also have heard what has happened with the women who have went to the tomb and found it empty, and the disciples who also went and found it empty. And so it's perplexing, right? They're walking. I mean, I can't imagine the utter confusion that they're sitting within they're walking within have no idea what to believe have you ever had an experience in your life where it's so perplexing you had you just have no idea what to do or what to believe some of you are shaking your heads so that's good for the rest of you that you've never had one of those experiences i pray you never do um But I think most of us have had one of those experiences where we've just been so perplexed. We don't even know how to move forward. We don't even know what to think about moving forward. And that's where they are. That's exactly where they are. And so it is in at this moment that Jesus interjects and explains the scriptures concerning himself. And as they stop for the night, they ask Jesus to stay with them. And Jesus agrees and he shares a meal with them. And while he is breaking bread and giving thanks, they recognize him and realize that their hearts were burning the entire time he was with them. These disciples encountered Jesus in a way that hit to the deepest center of themselves, and it literally made their hearts burn. Now, this passage ends by these disciples, after Jesus just leaves, just disappears. These disciples immediately return seven miles back to Jerusalem to share with all the other disciples what they had just experienced and that they had just experienced the resurrected Jesus. So their heart-burning experience not only was transformative, but it caused them, it prompted them towards action, towards doing something, to going and sharing. So now that we've kind of walked through this passage I want to spend the rest of the time we have looking at this heart-burning moment that these disciples experienced. You see, it reminds me of another burning heart moment in church history. It reminds me of the famous story of John Wesley. The moment which launched a movement of God, 
the moment when he also felt his heart burning. See, Wesley was in a Moravian Bible study kind of prayer group when Martin Luther's commentary on Romans was being read. It was then when Wesley realized the atoning work of Jesus for him and he experienced a sensation which he referred to as his heart was strangely warmed. His heart was strangely warmed. Sounds like a similar type experience, right? This heartwarming experience for Wesley led him on a journey which would radically affect millions of lives for Jesus. Wesley sought to reform the Church of England. And as a result, some years later, the Methodist denomination was birthed out of the Church of England. And the Methodist Church now has over 40 million members in 138 different countries. Pretty powerful for a heart-warming experience, right? One one man's influence and, and a heart-warming experience could lead to such powerful effects for the kingdom of God. See, it's not an exaggeration to say that Wesley's heart-warming experience changed not only his life, but the course of church history. Yet, I must point out that Wesley put himself in position to have this heartwarming experience by seeking the Lord. And the story of Wesley reminds me of also what has happened in our time, not too far from here, with the Asbury Revival. And I know some people debate the word revival, but that's another topic for another day. Just go with me on it. The Asbury Revival. Students of Asbury College were part of a weekly chapel service at the beginning of February when they felt overwhelmed by the Spirit of God for repentance, for God's love, and just for sheer wonder of who God is. This led students to not want to leave this chapel service, but become caught up in endless praise, worship, and confession. And over the course of several weeks, and even a little over a month, thousands of people were flocking to Asbury to be part of this movement of the Spirit of God. Now, for for those of you who know about kind of the history a little bit of Asbury, it's connected to the Methodist tradition, which is connected to John Wesley and his heartwarming experience, right? Thousands of people that flocked there, not only just the students and the faculty and stuff at Asbury who were there, but all the other people who were flocking there, they began having their own heart-warming experiences. And I don't know if you've read any of the articles or anything about that or um, know anybody who went. I I know a few people who went to experience that. Um, but quickly this Asbury moment also began spreading to other college campuses 
everywhere from Cedarville College to Baylor University and several others around the country were having similar experiences where God was tangibly touching the lives of college students and more than college students. And tens of thousands of people were having these heart-warming, heart-burning experiences with Jesus. My question for you all is, have you ever had a heart-warming or burning experience? Have you ever had a moment where God showed up so tangibly in your midst that it left a mark on you? I hope so. And I know I have. And I'm sure if I asked each of you specifically, you could tell me of some sweet, tender moments where Jesus showed up in your midst in a way that you will never forget. And it was like uh, the pivot point of your life. It's interesting, the uh, saint... St. Teresa of Avila, she had one of these experiences and she referred to it as her heart was being pierced over and over by an arrow. So how do we begin to have heartburn that changes us and changes the world around us? How do we begin to have our own heartburn experiences. Very simply, okay, very simple. I like simple. Do you guys like simple? Okay, keep it simple. Stupid is what I have to tell myself. Um, Very simple. Very simply, the best way to have heartburn experiences is to actually create opportunities. Create opportunities for it. You see, these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they said, weren't our hearts burning when he talked to us and opened scripture to us? Very simply, their hearts were burning just by being in his presence and talking to him and having scripture opened to them. If we are to experience heartburn, we must also spend time with Jesus and have him open scripture to us. In other words, we must spend time in prayer and in our Bibles. One of the things I tell my my college students is that they need to develop habits of prayer and scripture reading that are less about duty and obligation and are life-giving and Jesus-encountering. Because I have heard my whole life, being a pastor's kid, I've heard my whole life, yes, you're a Christian, pray and read your Bible. I've heard that my whole life. And I did that for the most part as a kid growing up. But I can say this, it always felt like a duty and an obligation and it never felt life-giving. And so... For me, it never became sustainable. I couldn't keep doing it because I was like, meh, it's good. I know I'm supposed to. Maybe people will judge me, but, you know, like it, 
I don't get much out of this, right? I mean, if we're honest, I think some of you probably know what I'm talking about, okay? I'm just up here saying what's in all of our minds sometimes. Um, And this is, I know, in my college students' minds because they tell me, you know, when we have conversations about it. And so it's trying to help them see that there's a reason why we've said, why I've heard from the time that I was a kid, that it is critically important as a follower of Jesus that we learn how to pray and read our scriptures And that's because that is how we have these moments where God can engage us, where Jesus can change us. And so if we are to do that, we need to find out how we can pray and read Scripture in a way that is life-giving. And a lot of that just has to do with our mindset. Because if you go into it expecting, well, I'm just going to read, I'm just going to pray or read scripture so I can check it off my list for the day, it's probably not going to be very life-giving from my own experience. But if you enter time with God in prayer, if you enter his word with him expectantly, expecting him to show up, expecting him to do something in you, I can almost guarantee just a subtle mind shift And a subtle approach change can make all the difference. And I've seen this happen in students. In fact, one of the things that I talk with them about is in in the Gospel of John, John, um, Jesus mentions that um, the Spirit is like something that causes Streams of living water to flow through and within and flow out. And one of the things I often tell them is, if your time with God in prayer and your time in his word doesn't feel like streams of living water flowing in and out and through you, you might need to start engaging it a little bit differently. Because... Time with Jesus, time with the Holy Spirit should be like putting some kind of balm on a wound. It should, it should feel like soothing. It should feel sometimes convicting. I'm not going to lie. But it should feel like peace, like living water flowing in and through you. I'll tell you a story real quick of... Two of my students, there's two guys that I meet with weekly and disciple them. And uh, towards the beginning of the semester, we went on, we took students to St. Meinrad's and did a little spiritual retreat day there. And it was it was great. Like we had different things planned for our students, for them to just spend time with Jesus and prayer and scripture and It was just great. But after we got back, I was meeting with these two students and we were kind of debriefing. And one of them was he just said he had such a difficult time with the experience. He didn't feel like he was connecting with the Lord at all. And, you know, he was just being honest. You know, he was just being honest. And so I said, oh, I tried to, like, ask some questions to try to figure out exactly what was what was going on and what what was causing him to, at the 
I think what the conclusion in his mind was is that God really didn't want to talk to him or have an experience with him. That's what he kind of came away with it. And so I just said, all right, here's what we're going to do. So me and these two students, I said, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to stop right now. We're just going to stop and we're just going to pray. And we're going to ask God why you're feeling this way. We're just going to ask God why you're feeling this way. Okay, so we do. We we pray for a few minutes. We pray. We listen for four or five minutes. I ask him, hey, any any did God reveal anything to you? Nope. All right. Okay. Cool. Um, not ex- not unexpected. Let's go pray. Let's pray again. So we go back. We pray again. Another four or five minutes. This time, I said, hey, how was that during our prayer? Did did God show anything? Did did anything come to your heart or your mind? And. The guy, the student who was the one struggling, he mentioned some things that were pretty vague, honestly, but at least something was moving. Right. And then the other the other student, he he said, and like this, you're going to think I'm weird. Maybe some of you, some of you won't. But just trust, trust me, like just give me the benefit of the doubt here. OK, so one of the, the other student, he said, you know, the weirdest thing happened, like in my mind. Like, all I saw was a Bible, and it was like this, opened, and all of a sudden, the pages flipped and landed on a certain page. And he said, I couldn't quite see what, what, where it was in the Bible. He said, and so I asked God to just show me what, what verse or what chapter, and so, God led him to a specific verse in 1 Corinthians. And so he then said, so he told us of this experience. And he said, it's 1 Corinthians, and I I forget the exact verse. But he said it, and he read it to us. And it was the exact thing that was vague that this the other student was talking about. And because of that experience with these two students, the student who, like, saw this picture like image of this Bible flipping and turning. That was the first time in his life that he had ever experienced God in a in a tangible way. He had never had an experience. He didn't even know if that he didn't even think that was possible. And so that was incredibly powerful to him. And the other student who the message was actually for that was a pivot point in his life because he all of a sudden, that was what he needed to hear and it was convicting and it set him on a completely new path. And that new path that this student it was sent on after that moment now unfortunately means he's going to transfer from UE, go to Bible college and become a pastor. What in the world? He's not supposed to be leaving me, so... But you see, like simple things, spending time with the Lord in prayer and allowing him to encounter and engage us with his word will create these heart burning experiences that will not only change and shape us, but will 
help lead us on a path that can change others around us and maybe even change the world around us. So my challenge for you all today in how to have heartburn is to spend some time with Jesus this week in prayer and scripture reading. Carve out 30 minutes or more, or more, okay, or more, hint, hint, or more, each day using 15 minutes to read scripture and 15 minutes to pray. But when you do it, do it expectantly. Expect the Lord to meet you and bring life to you like streams of water in a desert. Even just with 30 minutes a day, I truly believe you will start to experience the good kind of heartburn. Maybe that's 30 minutes taking a walk. How many of you like to walk each day? Okay, a few of you. Every night I take my dog for a walk um, at State Hospital Park. Um, so if you ever see a car, you drive by there very late in the evening and see a truck parked out there looking creepy. That's me and my dog. Don't hesitate. It's, it's okay. Um, but that's my time where I, I have, I listen to the Bible on um, audio Bible and I listen to scripture and I go through the Bible in a year, every year. And mostly I do that just by walking my dog every, every evening. Um, so do it while you're walking. Spend 30 minutes. Maybe that's um, 30 minutes of driving somewhere. I don't know if you guys have commutes or you guys regularly drive to different places, um, but we all end up spending probably more time in a car than we like, right? Or maybe that's a 30-minute break that you have at work. Sometimes creating 30 minutes with the Lord is just as simple as repurposing the time we already have. Just repurposing the time that we already have. Now, there are certainly other ways to experience heartburn. Like moments of passionate worship or conversations with spiritual mentors or friends. But starting with the basics that we see in this story, it's a great place to start. Prayer, and reading our scripture and encountering Jesus in those. Remember, Jesus longs to encounter each of us and have Emmaus Road experiences with all of us. Will you create the time and opportunities to have them with him? Let's pray. Father God, we just think back on our lives and we can maybe each of us think of moments where you have tangibly shown up in our midst and you have touched us in a deep way. And God, we are so thankful for those experiences. But Lord, I pray for more. I pray for more of those experiences. I pray for more life change. I pray... Pray for more Emmaus Road experiences. I pray just more over each of us who is here because, Lord, we know you're wanting to work and wanting to continue to work and to change and to form us. But, Lord, you also are wanting to change the world around us. 
And Lord, that starts by us recognizing that we have experienced the resurrected Jesus. So Lord, we ask for more. We ask that you open your heavens. You open the floodgates to each and every one of us who is here and who is watching online. We, we pray that you give us these experiences, not just sometime in our life going forward, but Lord, even today or even this week. We are your people. We are the sheep of your pasture. And Lord, we want to continue to have our hearts warmed and burned and shaped by you. So it is in 